Welcome to Straight with the Shack with Dart. Tonight I'm reading from Moments of Impact. Moments of Impact by Tom Wilson. Prologue. Pilot held open the door of the Grim and Goose seaplane at Vancouver International Airport. As I climbed aboard with six of my co-workers on that damp and foggy morning on Sunday, November 16th, 2008, I recognized our pilot, Peter, from having made this trip a few times to the remote construction site at Tobit Inlet, where we were headed to relieve another crew. The small float plane was old, cramped, noisy, uncomfortable. I just wanted to sleep, so that's what I did. I put in earplugs, curled my six-foot frame up into the field position in the window seat of row two, and went to sleep for 20 minutes. I bolted awake to the loud sound of something bashing into our aircraft, flying low through the fog in the mountainous area. Our pilot had strayed from the course. As treetops began to rip into the underbelly of the plane, he applied full power to the engines and pulled back on the stick, commanding the powerful air climb to climb higher. It was too late. The wings were already mortally wounded. A split second later, we slammed into the rugged side of the mountain island at full throttle. Impact. A brief moment of impact. Impact. A brief moment of impact. The moment of impact knocked me temporarily unconscious. As I gained consciousness, the plane was a burning shell shattered and smashed beyond recognition. The impact was so violent, the aircraft's emergency locator beacon, a device specifically designed to survive crashes and alert search and rescue teams was destroyed. No one knew where we were. The crash had ruptured the nearly full fuel tank, showering a hundred meters radius in aviation fuel. Everything around me was burning. Still belted into my seat, I was unable to run. My clothes and exposed skin were covered in aviation fuel. I was on fire. My name is Tom Wilson, and this is my story. In the chapters ahead, I'm going to share with you my thoughts on the moment of impact through our lives. Some of these special moments we can create in positive and productive ways. We can positively influence the lives of those around us with brief moments of impact, connecting with others in a genuine and influential way. Other moments are like the beginning of my journey to enlightenment. They're beyond our control and begin with horrific and tragic moments of impact, some physical, some emotional, and some spiritual, all with the same potential crushing effects. While we may not choose to have these things happen to us, we do have the power to choose how these events will or will not define us. This book is written in two distinct parts. Book one is the story of the faithful airplane journey, what happened to those of us on that plane, and my personal journey of self-discovery and learning. Book two is the role of human behavior and safety and what we can all do to make the world a safer place. Premonition. Do you believe in premonitions? I can tell you that in early 2008, 
I did not. But looking back on that day, I had what I can only describe as a premonition. I'm not sure if having a premonition today would change my course of action, but I would give it much consideration because of the experience I'm about to share with you. If I had changed my course of action on that November day, it might have influenced others. Maybe, just maybe, one or more of the seven good men who were with me that day might have followed my lead and still be alive today. At noon on Sunday, November 15th, 2008, I was driving to Edmonton International Airport from my home in the, of the, in the small community of Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta. The journey was for another work-related trip I had done at least a hundred times before, this time to the Plutonic Hydroelectric Project located at Tobin Island in the mountains north of Vancouver. My plan was to take, to take a commercial flight from Edmonton to Vancouver on Saturday, spend the night in the hotel, then catch a charter float plane to the work site early Sunday morning. From out of nowhere, a very strong feeling came over me as if something very bad was going to happen. I felt as if though I should cancel my flight and not go on this particular trip. There was no logic or reason behind this overwhelming feeling, which made it almost impossible to act upon. Nevertheless, there it was very strong and not easily dismissed. Along the drive to the airport, the premonition continued to bother me, yet there was no indication of anything wrong or out of the ordinary. I had taken many similar trips before, so nothing to be afraid of. Even though I had no real reason to cancel my travel plans, this feeling of easiness had me consider it. I tried to defeat the bad feeling by using logic and talk myself out of any thoughts of canceling the trip. What could I possibly tell my boss, I thought, that I had a bad feeling and decided I wasn't going on the trip? The nagging feeling just didn't make logical sense to me, but I continued to wrestle with these thoughts as I went on my way to the airport. At this time, I was a business manager going into my eighth year with Peter Kewitt Sons, a very large global construction company. I managed to climb the corporate ladder from an entry-level position to that of an area manager responsible for reporting on the financial performance of various construction projects. In this role, it was very common to travel directly to construction sites, some of which were in very remote locations. I had made this specific trip easily a couple times before. My past experience and familiar with the route caused me to question the premonition. The first flight to Vancouver went smoothly, and after landing safely in Vancouver, I dismissed the uneasy feeling completely. The lack of an incident helped me justify that uneasy feeling really held no meaning. Little did I know what was about to take place the next morning. Once in Vancouver, I went to the hotel to meet up with my friend and co-worker, Kyle Adams. Kyle was a bright 29-year-old man at the time. I'd worked closely with him for the past year and we'd developed a friendship. This was Kyle's first work trip to any remote project and his first flight ever on a float plane. Over dinner that evening, he talked excitedly about the trip. Kyle had an interest in float, float planes and had done some research on the history of Grumman Gruses and Fabian Kraft we'd be taking in the morning. 
I surprised, I was surprised at how much he'd learned about this particular plane and how much he was looking forward to this trip. Looking back on our dinner and the last night of Kyle's life, is a, it was ironic he was so excited to take this particular flight. morning, Sunday, November 16, 2008. We met in the lobby to check out of the hotel and grab a cab. Outside, the weather was foggy and accompanied by a light drizzle of rain. On the way, we discussed the possibility of flight being cancelled, but decided to continue to the airport to find out the status of our flight firsthand. If we did take off, we'd be on it. There was a limited number of flights in and out of Toblin Inlet, so if our flight was cancelled, we'd likely just have to wait around the airport until the conditions cleared up anyways. 9 a.m. The small southern terminal of Vancouver Island is used for smaller private planes and chartered aircraft. Off to the south side of the runway is a ramp down to the an inlet on the Pacific Ocean which provides access to water for amphibious planes. When we got to the counter of the charter airline, some other passengers were already there. They told us the flight was delayed due to the weather, but we'd be taking off shortly, so not to go far. I recognized another co-worker, AJ, as one of those in line. Since we had some time in our hands before the flight departed, Kyle and I invited AJ to join us for breakfast. I remember that breakfast very clearly. It all seemed so normal. It's hard to believe Kyle and AJ would die that morning. Remembering the normality of the breakfast with my friends drives home the reality of never knowing when death is coming. I still feel that it was unfair there was no warning of tragic looming, tra tragic events looming ahead. 9.45 a.m. From the airport restaurant, we saw the others lining up at the doorway leading out to the runway. We quickly paid our bills, grabbed our luggage, and headed out the door. Moment later, we were given the signal to head out across the runway to the airplane. Making the way towards the little eight-passenger float plane, I took note of the poor weather conditions. I was quite surprised, as I was thinking we all were, that we were being directed to board the plane even though the conditions hadn't improved. I wondered why the flight had initially been delayed, if we are going to take off in these conditions anyways. There seemed to be a sense of uneasiness amongst us, but we all kept our thoughts to ourselves and continued the short walk to the plane. Once at the plane, we handed over our luggage to the pilot and lined up for boarding one by one. This particular plane is small, with a proportionally small door for entering, unlike typical aircraft mount. Typical commercial aircraft. AJ and I started towards the door at the same time, bumping into each other. We both stepped back immediately to allow the other to go first. We continued to politely banter back and forth who should enter first. I'm very stubborn, so eventually AJ gave in and climbed aboard. Once inside, AJ went straight for the co-pilot seat. On these flights, passengers were allowed to sit in the co-pilot seat, a popular choice that offers substantially more legroom and when the weather is clear, an amazing view of the mountains. I was a little disappointed to miss out on the extra legroom up front, but that's what I got for being stubborn and insisting AJ board before me.
on this particular day, unbeknownst to either of us, it was also a sad factor in the difference between life and death. I boarded right behind AJ and chose the seat two rows behind the pilot, underneath the left wing. Unlike large commercial aircraft, the wings on the float plane were mounted above the passenger cabin. Kyle boarded next and took the street, the seat directly behind me. Looking out into the fog, less than half of the runway visible, I didn't feel very reassuring. But I kept comforting myself by thinking the pilot was obviously okay with it. Looking back at how normal this moment seemed, it also seems a little disturbing. The other guys were chatting a little, looking out the window and fidgeting their seats just as they would on any other flight. This is also another snapshot in my memory that reminds me how quickly and unexpectedly our life journey can take a cruel turn. Peter, our pilot, was the last aboard. He made his way to the front of the airplane, took his seat in the cockpit, immediately putting on his headset and looked back in the passenger cabin and said, Guys, we're going to have to do some low-level flying because of the weather conditions. If anyone has a problem with that, just let me know, and I'll let you off. The awkward silence followed that statement echoed through the plane. We just all looked at, another, at one another without saying a word. Then, breaking the silence, Peter added, It's my job to keep this flight boring. If anything gets excited at all, we'll just turn around and come back and have coffee. Although we still all felt uneasy, Peter's second statement comforted us enough to break the tension of the moment. We all looked at one another, nodded in agreement, and gave the thumbs up. Out of all the things I'm going to tell you, it is this moment, this second in time, this opportunity that I had to speak up and chose not to that will haunt me for the rest of my life. It was a moment of impact squandered away. It was also the moment I've learned from most. This was the moment that could have prevented the tragedy, but, ne but now passed and smoothed over by the pilot's comment about returning for coffee. The moment an opportunity to speak up was gone and could never be regained. Our journey and this tragedy was now underway and inevitable. The city of Vancouver is ringed by the Picarus North Shore Mountains, which form part of the Pacific Mountain Range. The Pacific shoreline along the westerly coast of British Columbia is likewise dotted by the southern Gulf Islands, a series of small, low mountain islands. These mountains and islands along the Canadian west coast were formed approximately 130 million years ago by a combination of volcanic action and shifting tectonic plates. And that concludes this night's episode of Straight from the Shack with Dart. <laughs>